I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Salutations, Mets fans, and welcome to episode 131 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro, and with me this week is Steve Sippa. Steve, there is no time for an opening question. You might, right. you might not be aware of this, but a lot has happened to the New York Mets in the last week. Do tell. We also have 10 emails from our listeners, which I think is some sort of record. So what we're going to do is we're going to go day by day since episode 130 and give you our thoughts on what's happened. And there's been a lot of it. And then we'll answer your emails. So I recommend to you that you cuddle up next to your fireplace, so I guess your air conditioner. Pour yourself a very large drink of whatever suits your fancy. For me, it is a um, wine and mead like ambrosia mixture. That I picked up in Savannah last year. Yeah, basically we're moving, so I'm trying to drink bottles of stuff so I don't have to take them to our new place. Oh, okay. Trying to finish up some of the alcohol. Uh, It's actually quite good. 
I don't mind it at all. It's not overly sweet. You would think it would be between mm. the honey and the cherry and the wine, but it's almost like a cherry rosé, a little fizzy. Not bad. So as I sip on my mead, we'll take you back to Monday and a lifetime ago, really, in Mets land and the Tyler Clipper trade. The Mets needed another bullpen arm even before the somewhat predictable Bobby Parnell implosion and the less predictable Henry Mejia suspension, which we'll also get to, but that's on Tuesday. So Clipper has already pitched three games for the Mets because, as we said, they need help in the bullpen. Uh, and he's been a bit shaky so far, I'll say that. But, you know, the track record is there despite a, a bad 2015 season, at least from a peripheral standpoint. Um, you know my mantra, Steve, that I repeat it over and over on the podcast. It's it's foolhardy to pre- predict the next 60 innings of any relief pitcher, let alone the next 30 or so that he's going to throw for the Mets. But how do you feel about the Tyler Clippard acquisition? I was uh, I had no problems with it. I think it was a good move. It shored up the bullpen. And, I mean, Meissner is a nice prospect to have, but in terms of the value that he brings right now, as compared to the value that Clippard brings right now to the team, you have to go with what Clippard brings. Right. I mean, this, there's some risk here. Let's not, you know, the the A's could very easily, quote unquote, win this trade in the long run. You know, it's a reliever rental. You don't know exactly what you're going to get, but they needed a proven late inning arm, and they got one. And he's been heavily used recently. You know, he's pitched over the last five years with the Nationals especially, pitched at least 70 innings each season. The peripherals are slipping. He's down to a 21% K rate and 12% walk rate this year. Um, now, how predictive is that? I don't know. Going forward, based on, you know, compared to his larger track record, I don't know. We're certainly going to find out together. But I think the process was good here. You know, these are, these are highly leveraged innings he's going to be throwing the rest of the way. And not just because they're late innings, because they're late innings in a playoff race. You know, not all win probability added is created equal. You know, theoretically, he'll be throwing innings in the playoffs for the Mets, knock on wood. Those are very high leverage innings. You know, they don't have a guy, you know, do you want Bobby Parnell, Hansel Robles, Alex Torres throwing those innings? Especially Alex Torres. Especially Alex Torres. And look, they gave up a, a nice piece for the reliever rental. You know, I like Casey Meisner fine. He's a pitching prospect. You know, you can read my report on him on the site. You can go back a couple episodes where I talked uh, about him coming off my St. Lucie trip. All my uh, info on him is there. As I said, it's just very generic. You know, if you don't even want to give up that level of a guy for a reliever rental, you know, a potential number four starter, yeah, I get that. I, I understand that. I think given the Mets' particular set of circumstances and the particular strengths and weaknesses of their farm system, I don't have a problem with it. But I do want to say this, Steve. I rarely, if ever, go in for media criticism on this show, as we know. And in the interest of full disclosure, the one time I met Keith Law, he was incredibly nice to me. But they're simply not trading a potential number two starter here, no, Keith. I'm sorry. Not at, not at all. And certainly not a guy with the downside of Chris Young. That guy isn't number six on your team midseason list like he was on Laws. That guy isn't number six on a national list. That is the best prospect in baseball. 
That player does not exist, by the way. Your downside is Chris Young, who's an above-average starter. That's not Lucas Giolito's downside. Before they even throwing out injury issues, you know, 10-step stuff. Your Lucas Giolito's pessimistic outcome is like a setup guy. It's not Chris Young. And Giolito's probably, at this point, the best pitching prospect in baseball. Either him or uh, Urias. And you can say the same thing about Urias. They simply were not giving up an elite prospect here. And he's not, you know, regularly touching 94, sitting there. He sat, he touched 93 for me, sat 90 to 92. That is not an above-average curveball. I'm sorry. And look, I like Meisner fine. He's not my favorite pitching prospect in the system. I think there's a natural amount of helium with these guys when they get traded and sort of thrust into the national spotlight in general. But I saw him three weeks ago. Again, you can read the report on the site. The guys you throw number two ceilings on, you know, Wheeler, Harvey, Syndergaard, Matt. He's not on that level. I did it with Marcos Molina. That was probably too aggressive, to be fair, looking back a year from now. Even uh, not, you know, counting for the injury, or the injury issues he's had this year and the potential Tommy John surgery. I did it with Domingo Tapia. That was way too aggressive. <laughs> it was also back in 2012 where I was more of a 30-grade prospect writer and podcast host. But even those two guys had way more present-day stuff than Casey Meisner and a fair bit of projection themselves. Yeah, at least Tapia had, you know, that fastball. I mean, Meisner, nothing really. He's, his sum is greater than his individual parts, but... That was an off day, Steve, by the way. It gets crazier. <laughs> We're just getting started. Tuesday, the Mets win. Big win. Noah Syndergaard, 18 up, 18 down, through a gem. Get a couple home runs, one from the suddenly hot Duda, one from the still hot Granderson. But the pen takes another, and already aforementioned, hit with the 162-game suspension of Henry Mejia. Not good. No. He's looked, he had looked good in the brief bits when he was back. Looked pretty much like the same pitcher we saw last year. And my fondness for Mejia and his hair is well known. Yeah, ever since I saw him on that rehab start in New Britain a couple of years ago. This stuff is great. Hey, you want another guy you, that I may have been aggressively throwing a number two OFP on? Henry Mejia. Sure. And look, I don't I don't really care about steroid stuff, as I mentioned on the show before. I don't take this shit personally. You know, he didn't do anything to me. I'm not personally wounded. I don't think he disgraced the game. I just think he's an idiot. Yeah, I mean, fool me once, shame on, you know, that's just, that's, what an idiot. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, what else can you say? It's the same substance. He already got popped four ones. He did it while he got, you know, pissed hot while he was suspended for pissing hot the last time. Right, that's the thing. It's not even like another year or two. His literally a few weeks had elapsed. Like, yeah. It's it's just crazy stuff. So, you know, maybe if you want to take the optimistic view, maybe he really doesn't know how it's getting into his body and it just keeps getting into his body. Maybe uh, more likely whoever sold him the masking agent for it gave him a line of bull again. <laughs> 
Maybe he just thought he needed it because of the arm issues. I don't know. But I do know it's probably the end of the Mejia story as a Met, as far as that goes. He'll get another chance because of the arm, probably on a short deal because, you know, next time he pisses hot, he's done. You know, maybe he goes to Japan. Um, you know, it's like a sad end to the story for me. It's wasted potential if you want to. I just can't take it particularly personally. Yeah, I mean, it, like you said, it's it's sad from a baseball perspective, based on just having followed him for so long and knowing the potential that was in that arm, and then it just kind of everything just kind of fizzled away, and that's the end of it. And, oh well, but sure. I mean, you get attached to these guys, and yeah. sometimes it, shit like this happens. It is what it is, though, and have to move on. Wednesday, the Mets lost a stinker, but no one cared. Absolutely no one was following the game by like 7.30, I felt like. Because Carlos Gomez. Carlos Gomez, Carlos Gomez. Long-time listeners of this show, recent devotees, people that just tuned in for the last episode might know that I'm a bit of a Carlos Gomez fan. When the trade was officially announced, or unofficially announced, or I got an at-bat notification about it. Which is, I think, fairly official, you would think, in this day and age. I had already planned the opening for this week's podcast, which is going to be a supercut of every single time I recommended the Mets acquire Carlos (laughs) Gomez. I was going to go back and listen to the episodes from this season, and even back further, as best I could remember. Cut it all together over the extended version of the theme song. We'd have a little party on the show could have an entire podcast episode of just that probably could um i end up saving a lot of time steve because i didn't have to do that no and look the deal as i said before on the show it's it, the deal made perfect sense for this team where they are right now they get a center fielder a good one which allows them to get lagaris get his tommy john surgery take all of 2016 to recover Gomez is under contract through 2016. Keep Conforto in left. Keep Granderson in right. Get a right-handed bat that can could really bat anywhere one through four in that lineup, depending on how you wanted to mix and match and how you wanted to stack lefty-righty. And it's a below-market, as far as 2016 goes, it's a below-market deal, well-below-market deal, that even the Mets oh, yes. could afford. Hashtag ominous foreshadowing. <laughs> So the deal actually hit when I was driving to pick up my wife, and I'm not going to lie, I was probably, look, if, the cop, if any cop at any point in time had pulled me over, I would have had no case. <clears throat> I had the thing, like, mounted on my dashboard, like, updating Twitter. Just tell them that Matt's traded for Carlos Gomez, yeah, I figured if they don't let you go, then forget it. Really? Um, and then it fell apart on the way back when I was not on my phone, because my wife would yell at me. Um, so I didn't really get to see it. Um, unfold in real time so it really hit me I think as hard as maybe it did other people I just sort of came back I got a text from the prospect hate man about how the deal had blown up I checked Twitter and I'm like oh the deal blew up and Wilma Flores is crying on the field apparently <laughs> um, it certainly was very unique it was I mean, and in, it, in this day and age of Twitter and everything like that like I mean, that stuff doesn't really get reported unless it's basically a done deal and look, I don't know for sure what happened. I will say this, and I'm going to hedge here in, in a multitude of ways. 
my life is very different as a Mets fan than it was a few years ago. Um, it's almost tougher in a way, and this is not like a woe is me thing. But, and again, I can't really get into details, but people tell me things. Well-connected, well-sourced people just give me information about what's going on with the team, usually on background or an event or to get my take on something. Um, I will just say this. The medical's excuse is extremely dodgy. And that's even before the Astros, who are the most process-oriented team out there, we all know the uh, Brady Aiken story at this point, took him on and offered, on balance, a comparable and maybe even better deal, depending on what you want to wait. And it was a mess. And it's like one of those moments where I'm like, I can't, how can I still follow this team? Like, honestly. Like, maybe I'll just cover the Rockies farm system next year. It is, but it's one of those moments where you're like, and yes, it plays into every sort of negative narrative about ownership and the front office that's already out there. So you are sort of, you know, viewing it through a certain lens. But it's it, it was like a really big gut punch because it's like they were this close. At the time, they were one game back, about to go two game back, two games back, and they had a potential game-changing player, one who was under contract through 2016, and they were offering, you know, it was a fair amount going back in that trade. I like Zach Wheeler. The whole Zach Wheeler trading in the midst of rehab thing is weird to me in general, but yeah, I, I, guess, I guess they don't want to trade one of the big four, and he's probably a better asset than any of their other prospects. So I guess I understand that from that. I just don't know why a team would want him over a guy like, say, Conforto right, I mean, or Rosario, given the inherent risk, the fact that he hasn't thrown a, even a rehab game yet. Right. Whatever team is trading for him is basically not getting any kind of return until mid-season sometime next year. So it's basically an entire calendar year with no returns. And from the Mets' perspective, you would think they would be kind of selling low on him. But I guess it doesn't seem that way from the deals he was rumored to be in. So maybe that's like a new thing I haven't adjusted to in the game where people are more willing to trade for guys. I mean, I heard sort of scuttlebutt that Marcos Molina's name was around a lot in trade rumors too. That's another guy who hasn't even had Tommy John surgery yet, but (laughs) probably will. So maybe there's something to teams wanting to buy low on some of these guys or at least think they're buying low on some of these guys. That takes us to Thursday, and it gets worse, Steve. Sure does. So unlike the Gomez trade falling apart, which I wasn't really aware of at the time, I was on a 15-hour film shoot for work on Thursday, most of which was spent driving to various locations. So I got to see the entire game unfold on my Twitter feed in the backseat of a car. Which is not the best way to consume Mets baseball in general, because you get it filtered through Mets Twitter. <laughs> Which is not great. Not ideal. No. John Neese pitched well. There were more home runs. Uh, and then Bobby Parnell. <sighs> so, look, this has been coming. Um, I hate to say it. It was sort of evident when he was on rehab that he was not really ready to pitch this year. Um... 
you know, the reports I was getting from people that saw him on rehab were like, or guy arm. And certainly when he came up, that's what he looked like. Mm. And he really hasn't gotten blown up. He really hadn't started to get blown up until the velocity started to come back, which is kind of weird. But I mean, the success he was having early on, he was trying to sneak a fastball by guys and he was just going to junk ball knuckle curve after knuckle curve. And it worked for a little bit. Now it's not working. You know, he's, he's not missing bats like he used to. You know, he's not a guy that really should even be in the major league bullpen at this point, probably. And, and look, it was a, it, the situation as it was, it was a 7-1 to one lead. That's the kind of spot you use the last guy in your pen. Yeah. And, you know, Hansel Robles, he up a home run. It was still 7-5. to five. Familia came in, got two outs and a strike, and then it rained. I mean, you know all this. I don't know why I'm giving you sort of the blow-by-blow. I'm trying to set the scene, I guess. But you know what happened. Then it stopped raining, but not really. Then they gave up a couple hits and a home run. Then it rained again. And then the Mets eventually, mercifully, lost. I don't know where that falls on the Bill Simmons level of losing, Steve. Well... It's better than losing on the walk-off balk. Hmm. But it's not a good way to lose. Especially coming off the Gomez thing. Yeah, it was you just... You think they only have no money to add another bat. This is what our life is now. It's going to be miserable for the rest of the year. It was the most low Mets way to reinforce the whole Lola Mets theme. And now, of course, the Mets are three back of the Nationals, with the Nationals coming to town on Friday. Of course, before the game started, the Mets did finally make a move at the last second, possibly spurred on by Jeff Wilpon ordering the trade of Michael Fulmer. We'll never know. Um, But the Mets have Ioannis Suspedes. And look, it isn't Carlos Gomez. And here comes the cynicism side of being a Mets fan again. It's another move that doesn't require any m- money committed past October 1st. But Jonas Suspedes is pretty awesome. He's alright, yeah. Now I know you're lower on this trade than I am. Yes. You're not a fan. Um, I mean, I appreciate that the the upgrade that Suspedes brings to the lineup, but for secondary reasons, I'm a little down on it. You like Michael Fulmer. I do like Michael Fulmer. And aside from his, you know, he has pretty decent upside, you know, mid-rotation starter if he's able to stay a starter, pitch pitch those innings. And he, he looks like, you know, with his fastball and he has a very good slider, he looks like he could be maybe a high-leverage bullpen piece if he's shifted to the bullpen. So, I mean, he would have utility to the team, you know, at a major league level. But... My biggest problem with it is that I feel that Fulmer might have been our best trade chip. And not that Cespedes is a bad player, but I would have preferred to see Fulmer moved to bring back a player who um, is going to be uh, you know, a, a long-term piece. Like, you know, Jay Bruce's name had been floating around for a couple of days. I would have preferred to see, like, a Jay Bruce. He's a guy that would have been under contract for a few more years. I assume that, you know, the Mets are not going to re-sign Cespedes because Wilpons... I think that's a safe bet. Yeah, because Wilpons and money and everything like that. So 
to see Fulmer traded for a couple of month rental if you know if the Mets don't actually make that push into the playoffs it, it just seems like we, we got rid of our best trade ship for really not much I think that's a perfectly reasonable take on the deal because it does not involve again blowing up Michael Fulmer's prospect status past what it actually is Keith Law um you know i gotta look i like michael fulmer and i haven't seen him this year so i've got to be careful here Uh, chris mcshane did we can read him his uh notes on fulmer on the site but from what i've seen and from people i've talked to i think you're right it's probably a high leverage reliever and he's got a shot to be a mid-rotation starter he's never thrown 120 innings in a season he said shoulder and knee problems uh you know it looks like a guy between the mechanics and the lack of a change-up you know, I'd, I'd probably take Gazelman over him personally. Uh, he was higher on my midseason list, certainly. We had Fulmer, you know, aggregate at eight. He could have been higher, I suppose. Um, and I don't think the deal was a steal, but comparing it to the other rentals around, like he says that it's probably not as good short-term or, you know, whatever, a, a true talent level as Johnny Cueto. Johnny Cueto is a, you know, top-of-the-rotation starter. But I think you can compare the Cespedes move to uh, to Ben Zobrist. Now, yeah. He'll give you the value in a different way, but I think there may be like comparable assets for the rest of the season. And I think they gave up less for Cespedes than the Royals gave up for Zobrist. And look, the Royals are in a different place on the win curve. The Royals have different goals. The Royals are going to the playoffs. Now, they're trying to build a team to win the World Series now. They need another starter. And Zobris gives them a lot of positional flexibility, or they can just bench Omar Infante. And that gives them a big upgrade as well. I just play him at second base every day. You know, the Mets are the chasers here. They've got to run down the Nationals. But they did need, you know, they need, it's not one or two holes they're trying to plug like the Royals are to make them a, a, a force in the playoffs. If they get there, they are going to be a force because of the rotation they have put together. But they need to get there which means collecting above-average bats. And I think with Uribe, Johnson, and Cespedes, they've gotten a bit down the road on that. You know, they've made some gains. So I'm okay with it. You know, flaggers, Casey Stern says, prospects are cool, pennants are cooler. Absolutely. And if you look at it, what they gave up, to get the players they got. Look, it might not work out. We're Mets fans. We should know this. <laughs> it might end horribly. I feel like we're well prepared for that. I think by any measure, it was a productive trade deadline. And they did a good job sort of taking the Gomez taste out of our mouth. Though I still wonder and worry about 2016. We are a long way away from there. And we'll deal with that... Uh, when it comes. I guess episode 212. Yeah, or whatever. Which takes us, Steve, to Friday night. It was a good night. It was a good night. I want to get this out of the way first before I have a long spiel. Um, I think I said on the show, I don't remember when it was. It might have been after the most recent Terry Collins extension. I think it was after the 2013 season. I feel like that's right. I said, look. Terry Collins, it's not a big deal. I don't hate the move to extend him. But sooner or later, 
whether by luck or skill, this team is going to be competitive. They're going to be in a playoff race, and Terry Collins is going to be the manager. And then stuff like Eric Campbell playing 12 innings in left field is going to happen. Yeah, I can't even formulate words. I mean, I was at that game. We were in left field. You know, I should not have physically been seeing Eric Campbell standing there for that. It was terrifying. (laughs) Like, Kelly Johnson is on this team. They acquired Kelly Johnson because he can play multiple positions, second, third, in both corners. And he has basically no platoon split. He's left-handed, but he, for his career, has hit lefties and righties about equally. Both of which he has hit better than Eric Campbell. It's not a very hard bar. He's played almost a full season in left field over his career. Eric Campbell basically started playing left field. I'm, I was there when it happened, when they promoted Flores, so it must have been 2012. And really didn't play that much there in the minors. I think it was 2013. I think it was 2013. I think it was yeah. the end of 2012. Yeah, Campbell was there 11 and 12. You know, look, we can get into Eric Campbell shouldn't have been in the starting lineup. We can get into Eric Campbell shouldn't be on the 25-man roster. But for my purposes, because that's a much longer discussion, <laughs> Eric Campbell should have been pinch hit for in the, what's the third inning with the bases loaded? That's when you get him out of there. Was there any reason why Conforto wasn't in the starting lineup to begin with? I understand, you know, and lefty, tough lefty, lefty. I think it was tough, tough lefty, lefty, which is Gonzalez. fine, which is fine. I don't have a problem with that really that much. I mean, I wish they had better right-handed options, which they do now, but certainly, there were multiple opportunities to pinch hit for Eric Campbell. Right, certainly by that ninth inning. I think it was the bottom of the ninth Campbell spot came up. I think it was it before that. It was, I think it was top of the eighth. At bottom of the eighth, right. he was the leadoff hitter. And they let him face Rourke. Yeah, there was no reason why he should not have been pinched for somebody. With Duda, Neuenheis, and Conforto on the bench. So this is what this is now our cross to Bear Mets fans. It's Terry Collins in a pennant race. <laughs> and we know his in-game managing is the weakest part of his management game. I guess that's better than, you know, Terry Collins with the Mets 16 games behind, but still. It's true. And... I'm not going to lie. I, I thought he should pinch it for Flores in a couple of different circumstances with a ready on the mound. Oh, you have little faith. And look, so here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing. You, After I finish this, listeners, you are free to call me a hypocrite. I can defend myself. I can say my criticisms of Flores over the, on, you know, on this show over the past two years were based in cold analysis of his particular skill set and that really... My beef is with the Mets' financial situation that forced Flores into a position that he was not equipped for. You know, it's like Lucas Duda in right field. Yeah. Nobody really holds that against Lucas Duda. And look, that would absolutely be true. And I've said on the show before, I think there's more in Flores' bat than he's shown so far. I have praised his work ethic to get him to the point where he's a very bad Major League shortstop. <laughs> But go back and listen to the stuff I said about Flores on the show. There was some malice there. There was some frustration with his lack of offensive development. And yes, being me, there was some snark. As I said, I've praised him too. Um, you know, the work ethic. You know, just the effort it takes to, to go from a guy that was dead as a prospect three years ago. 
dead and buried. Three years in St. Lucie, never developed. Or a guy in waiting, you know, would maybe continue to get shots because of four-year-old quotes about him being the next Miguel Cabrera. An empty pedigree. And, you know, he worked himself into what has been so far a below-average Major League Baseball player. And as I say on the show often, you know, nowadays we're rooting for laundry. There's no connection here. You know, Suspettis will be gone in three months. Uribe and, and Kelly Johnson as well. Tyler Clippard probably. You know, they might as well be strat cards. Baseball playing robots. You know, a binary, with a binary language for good baseball player and everything else. That's what we care about. We want wins. That's the bottom line. And so far, Wilmer Flores was not a good baseball player. He still may prove to be not a good baseball player. But Steve, Wilmer Flores is my favorite baseball player. <laughs> this is my mea culpa. In fact, one could argue, to be a good baseball player, you can't have a deep emotional connection to the team you play for. And that's, that's our job. That's our, again, our cross to bear. We're invested in these, in this team and these guys past, you know, well after, well before they get here and well after they leave. Uh, Ken Tremendous, Michael Shore, I remember told a story on the uh, podcast many years ago. Uh, he was hanging out. He ended up, you know, being he has a good life. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, but through some mutual friends, he ended up hanging out with Johnny Damon out there when he was still with the Red Sox. And they had a game out in, in L.A. against the Angels. I guess they lost in some horrible fashion that just like, ate him up inside. And then Johnny Damon calls him after the game. Like, oh, yeah, you guys want to go out for drinks now? And, like, it, like, really bothered Shore because, like, it, like he was still, like, about the game. And Johnny Damon's, like, just, you know, let's go get a beer, whatever. And But that, to get to that level, to be a good Major League Baseball player, you have to have that in you. It's got to be gone. You know, that loss on Thursday, it stuck in my craw for hours, all the way back over the GW Bridge from North Jersey. I was just fuming about a team, about the game, about the situation with Carlos Gomez. I was pissed. I considered taking a week off from the show. I thought about resigning from the site and just, as I said, covering the Rocky system next year. Why do I invest my time in this? Because, and I, and I don't say this to sort of put myself on a level above anybody else, but I'm not just a fan. I spend hours of my week on this team, and I get shit in return. That's very true. So listeners need to appreciate us more. That's <laughs> not what I'm going for. <laughs> oh. you know, we've been doing this pod since 2013. 130 episodes. God knows how many hours. I haven't added it up. You know, two and a half years, and this team has been bad through all of it. And not just bad in a mediocre baseball team way, which they certainly have. I've drowned my sorrows in many cocktails on this show. Talked about many losses, and there's been stupid distractions. PED, sexual harassment, refinance loans. And again, through it all, mediocre baseball. But that is our cross to bear. It cannot be the player's. You, again, you do not get to that level by being emotional about one game. You get traded, you send out a boilerplate tweet thanking the fans and organizations you came from, and talk about how you look forward to new opportunities. If you've been there a long time, maybe you take out an ad, you know, if you're a big major league player, a star, maybe you take out an ad in the local paper to do the same, essentially. You do not cry on the baseball field. <laughs> even if this is the only job you've ever known, even if your friends are all there, 
even if you got plucked out of Venezuela at 16, given life-changing money, and worked your ass off to make the majors. But here's the thing. The Mets have made all of us cry, and now they made Wilmer cry. He was one of us in a way that transcends rooting interest. It's a knowing empathy. It's a connection now that can never be severed. It's very true. I mean, I was at the game, and he made a decent play in the first inning, the second inning, whatever it was. He gets a standing ovation. I mean, it was good. Was it standing ovation good? Eh, not really. He comes up to bat. Again, another standing ovation. I think he popped out, whatever it was. But he's, he's a Mets cultural hero at this point. Right, and... The play in the first wasn't worth a standing ovation. Um, he then fucking pulled another dick-high fastball into the Party City deck, Steve. That was worth a standing ovation. The Mets are two back. They have DeGrom and Syndergaard on the bump. There's the possibility of hope. As you are well aware, all of you, Steve, listeners, co-hosts, Amazing Avenue community, I am the cynic on this show. I've been told that. I'm a pessimist. And look, you need a certain amount of cynicism, a certain amount of pessimism, as armor against this shitty franchise. You just can't bear it otherwise. The Mets will break you eventually. It's what they do. They've done it to me several times. This is not really a good team. No. Even after a pretty good trade deadline. But neither are the Nats. And it's a sprint to the finish. And as Wilmer Flores proved, anything can happen. <laughs> Now move on to your emails. Before we do emails, we do housekeeping. This is Amazing Avenue Audio, episode 131. Amazing Avenue Audio is the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. You can find us on the internet at amazingavenue.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. And join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash Amazing Avenue. You can find the podcast on iTunes. Just search for Amazing Avenue Audio. Can listen or subscribe right there. I encourage you to do both. I also encourage you to rate and review the podcast. Find the podcast on the Stitcher app, download directly from blogtalkradio.com slash amazing avenue, or listen to the embedded player that goes up in the podcast post at Amazing Avenue proper. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. You can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. My co-host this week is Steve Sippa. You can follow him on Twitter at Steve Sippa. That was the housekeeping. These are your emails. All fucking ten of them. <laughs> you can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. I don't even honestly know where to begin. Do you have any preferences, Steve? Uh, no. No? Just start at the top. Start at the top. All right. I'm going to start at the top. It's the most recent or the least recent. So I can never get my Gmail to load. Oh, I should have had this. Oh my god, we have 11 emails now. Sorry. One just came in. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, Does that make the deadline? Yeah, whatever. All right. But I will still start. I'll start in the middle. Okay. Why not? I'll start with an email from Joe because it's short. Um, and how, at, some, at some point, I'm now going to miss one of these emails probably because I'm not going down the line. But we'll see how it goes. Do any of you think the framing numbers on Ploiecki are legitimate or just kind of small sample or maybe an accurate piece of the questionable calculation of the numbers? 
If they are legitimate and Ploiecki is a Benji Molina type player, is he worth keeping a catcher? You could then possibly move Darno to the outfield to keep him healthy. <coughs> so we'll unpack this by starting with framing numbers in general. So framing, or as it used to be called before uh, Mike Fast and company got a hold of the pitch FX data, receiving is a valuable skill for catchers. I remember reading, I had like a, when I was very, very young, I had a book about pitching for kids. And they show you the different pitch grips, how you shouldn't throw a curveball. And they'd also have uh, interviews with various players, little blurbs from various players in it. And one of them was talking about working with their catcher. And there was a quote from somebody, I don't remember who, it might have been an umpire, about Tony Pena and how good he was at stealing strikes and framing pitches. So this stuff has always been around. It was just until we had pitch FX data, uh, we haven't really been able to put a run value on it. And here's the thing about those run values. Those runs don't actually exist, which is both kind of the point of the stat, but also something I think we need to consider when you know, assigning, like, just sort of aggregating it or adding it to your catcher's war value. So, you get a 1-1 pitch that's low and away that Travis Darno, or in this case Kevin Ploiecki, snatches and turns into a strike. He gets credit for the sort of total run value of a 1-2 count versus a 2-1 count. The next batter, if the next pitch is you know put into the left field bleachers, it doesn't matter. Ploiecki still gets credit for creating that ball strike scenario. Now, granted, most of the value in aggregate for this comes from, you know, framing strike three or framing ball four, because those are sort of the widest disparities in in run values in a lot of cases. <clears throat> but I just don't feel comfortable sort of putting run values on hypotheticals, what might have happened afterwards. You know, I think if you're going to use war or you're going to put run values in general um, on baseball skills, it should be a measurement of what happened, not what might have happened because of the situation you put your pitcher in or because of game state things. Now, that said, I've been pleasantly pleased with Kevin Ploiecki's defense. Mm-hmm. Um, now, is he a good enough defensive catcher that you're going to move Darno to the outfield? I don't think so. No. He just hasn't hit yet. I think the bat will get there eventually. But I, I think on balance, he's not as good a defender as Darno. And look, Darno may have to move to the outfield or somewhere else um, in the next few years. But um, I don't think it'll be Ploiecki forcing him off the position. No. I mean, he's he's an inferior defensive and offensive catcher. That I mean, doesn't mean he's bad or anything, but as compared to Darno. The funny thing is he now might be a good enough defender that he can just be a backup catcher for a while, which would have been harder if he was just like a bat-first guy. Oh, yeah, no, his defense has really come around the last, like, two years. Yeah, and look, it's I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I'm not... There are certain tools I have in my bag as, like, a scouty dude. Evaluating catcher defense... I've gotten better at it, 
and I know sort of broad things to look for, but it's not my strong suit. You know, that said, I still think Plaw is probably more of an average defensive catcher on balance, which granted is a little bit better than I thought he would get to. I know DRS has something like 12 runs above average or something ridiculous like that, yeah, which I think might does... be the frame. I might have the framing values baked into it, I forget, um, how catcher DRS works nowadays. But, look, it's a, it's a nice skill to have. He's always been a pretty good receiver. That was one of the skills. Like, my concerns for him defensively was blocking an arm, which I think have still been there to a certain extent, though he has improved in both uh, in both categories. All right, I suppose we'll get this one out of the way. It's from Stuart. Dear Jeff and co-host, seeing as the G1 Climax is now upon us for 99.9% of our listeners... The G1 Climax is a summer singles round-robin tournament that New Japan Pro Wrestling has every year, um, similar to All Japan's Championship Carnival and Dragon Gate's King of Gate, where essentially you take the the top wrestlers, get divided up into groups, they all wrestle each other round-robin style, and the two highest point-getters face off in the finals when they are the G1 Climax champion. What did you like about it so far, and who do you want to see win? Also, what is your opinion on Naito's new Lucha Heel look? Stuart, I don't watch New Japan. I can't emphasize this enough again. I only watch Dragon Gate. I don't watch New Japan. The hate man has not worn me down yet to the point where I will subscribe to New Japan World for this. Have you watched any of the G1s, Dave? I've watched two matches. Did one of them have Naito in it? No, neither one did. All right. Well, you're out of luck there too, Stuart. Sorry. <laughs> if you want to send me a picture on Twitter.com, I will evaluate his look from a pro wrestling standpoint because I'm capable of doing that. While we are in the pro wrestling segment of the show, I want to say how upset I am about uh, uh, Roddy Roddy Piper passing away. Yeah, it is very sad. I'm thinking for our next live show, I may have to bust out the Hot Rod shirt. That's a good shirt. I mean, there's a couple, there's like maybe 10, 15 classic wrestling shirts, and that is definitely one of them. So what's your what's your I hate doing Mount Rushmores. What's your Mount Rushmore of wrestling shirts? Oh, uh, it's tough. Our um, our SVN wrestling affiliate Cage Shard Seats recently did that. So for anyone who's interested, they can you know look there. For me personally, huh? How many are we going for? Four. What was four? Yeah. Oh, uh, you have to go with the. Classic NWO, black and white. Yep, definitely. I, I mean, agree with that. Everybody had one of those. Yep. Um, I don't know if I want to include the Hulkamania shirt because <laughs> I don't I think, think Hulkamania exists see, anymore. Well, the, the thing about that, too, is that was not really a wrestling shirt era. Most like the Hulk rules Hulkamania shirts were sold when he sort of came back. Right. His his run after WrestleMania what eighteen, the one in Toronto, yeah, that sounds right. So after the Hogan Rock match, when he sort of went back to the red and yellow, that's when I think a lot of those Hulk rules and sort of classic Hulkamania shirts got sold. Um, let's see. You want to go with the Austin three sixteen, just the plain one with the smoking skull, maybe. I think just the plain three sixteen. Yeah, I could I could see that. I think the the best in the world CM Punk has reached iconic status at this point. Yeah. Um, the DX like graffiti. Yep, that's a good one too. Rock Brahma Bowl. Mm, that's definitely. 
I don't believe there's really one for Cena. I mean, he's sold a billion t-shirts at this point. Right, well, I mean, there's just too many. Yeah. He, he only has the same shirt for, like, three months. Mick Foley, have a nice day. Oh, yeah. It's a good one. Smiley face, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think. I know sort of my my Pantheon shirts and one I still actually own, sort of moving to Japan, is the uh, the original Crazy Max shirt, black with the white logo. Mm. I've had that shirt for 14 years now, and it's basically falling apart, but I still wear it to shows <laughs> every now and again. Um, the M2K shirt, too, from that era is iconic to me. Um, the the plain New Japan Pro Wrestling shirt with the lion, mm. I think, is an excellent design. Um, I know some of the Dangerous K, some of the Kawada shirts from the 90s, too, were very, very good. Just the black one with his, like, the yellow face on it. Mm. Um, I'm forgetting any others. I think of like indie dudes, if any indie dudes have had really good shirts. I mean, I've seen a million indie dude shirts over the years at right. various stalls. I'm just not, nothing is really coming back to me. I don't remember any great, like, all the ROH shirts always look terrible to me, like the branded ones. Yeah. They're going for too much, like, sort of like an affliction design kind of thing. But I think, I think, I think classic NWO, plain Austin 316. DX, have a nice day. That might be the four. Yeah, it's a good list. It's a solid list. I do want to say, because I promised this on Twitter.com, since we're talking about pro wrestling tournaments, I, I, I have the Wilmer Flores comp I was thinking of after you hit that home run. Yeah, I know which one, and it is a good comp. Um, so, 2003. Uh, it wasn't called Dragon at that point. It was still called Toriyaman. It was still an Ultimo Dragon gym production. Um, before the the kids split with Ultimo Dragon, which I think happened in 2005, if I recall correctly. I think it's been 10 years since that happened. Um, They had their annual El Numero Uno tournament, which was basically the same as King of Gates, same basic format, round-robin groups. Except they did it weird where there were three groups, the top two from each group went through, and everyone that didn't get into it on the final show, there was a big battle royal, and the last two survivors got put into the quarterfinals. Which is like, as of anything in that Toriyaman era, made absolutely no sense, but somehow it turned out <laughs> awesome. Don't worry about it. So there was this guy, Genki Horiguchi, who people may know, um, or maybe not, I don't really talk about it on Twitter, is basically my favorite pro wrestler ever. Um, but before then, he had broken in as sort of a, he had like a surfer gimmick. He literally came out to surf in USA by the Beach Boys, like with a surfboard and wrestled in a wetsuit, this long sort of like stringy wet hair. That's like nineteen. That's like late eighties, early nineties. Yeah, it is like WWF the full like gimmick. yeah, it's WWF like the guy with a job gimmick, like Duke the Dumpster Drossy or Repo Man or Sparky Plug, Sparky Plug or uh, what is it, Isaac Yankum DDS, oh, just dude that. with a job. Um, that was pretty much how it went, and he was like he was a good wrestler because they all were. He was kind of like just a generic mid card face, you know, got some time with the one of the undercard single titles you know basically their intercontinental title equivalent at the time um and he had like a kind of not too big a deal heel turn joined one of the big heel stables started to lose his hair so he started chanting bald at him which is a hage or h-a-g-e uh in japanese started up about that time um but he was just kind of like a nothing mid-card heel at that point and then he 
was one of the two survivors in the battle royal and got paired against the leader of his stable his heel stable at the time magnum tokyo who was a big deal in Toriyama, japan you know sort of one of the stars essentially and they did the whole spot where he says he, he tries to get him to lay down for him and he lays down for him then small packages him it's like a classic wrestling spot um and then basically tokyo gets pissed beats the crap out of him for three or four minutes goes for his finisher genki slips out gets him with pins him with a backslide one two three the entire crowd goes crazy because it was just completely unexpected you know this like mid-card heel you know he's like a funny a little good bit of comedy but just not a big deal you know, pinned one of the top wrestlers. You know, one of the favorites, I believe, to win that tournament at the time it was going to be him or Milano Collection AT, I think, with the two um, sort of, like, betters' favorites if you followed the uh, promotion. So he goes to semifinals, faces off against uh, Masaki Mochizuki, another big star of the organization. And this time he gets a little aggressive, hits, like, a big topa dive outside the ring to start, but eventually the tide turns. Mochizuki beats him up for three minutes, goes for his finisher, which is like a brain buster. He slips out, backslide, one, two, three. Crowd goes batshit. Now he's in the finals against Shima, who is the star. I know Meltzer's already like pumping him as like a one Hall of Fame candidate this year, and he should be in if Dragon's in, because he's, I think, better than Ultimate Dragon in terms of a Hall of Fame case. He's carried that promotion for 15 years. They were outdrawing New Japan in the mid-2000s. Uh, and they have a 20-minute match, which I think is still probably my favorite match of all time. You know, Shima gets out of the backslide a couple times, comes back, hits his big finishing sequence, um, you know, wins, because he wins the tournament, no surprise there. It also crowns sort of their, they created their own singles title out of that. He's the first champion there. It all makes sense. But after that, like to this day, this is 12 years later, Horiguchi was made for life with the Dragon Gate Toriyaman fans. That's basically what's happened with Laura Flores. This was a star-making performance this week. Well, that wasn't the comp I thought you were gonna, going to go for. What comp did you think I was going to go for? <laughs> uh, the the uh, Wilmer Flores face turn a la... Virgil oh, yeah, I should, yes, yes, you're right. No, So I, I actually mentioned this, and it did, then did happen, because somebody right. asked me. I made... A comment on Twitter after the the crying thing went down, um, that you know he's now the biggest baby face. You, uh, if, if I said if Flores went off the rest of the year, it would be the best baby face turn since uh, Macho Man Randy Savage at WrestleMania Seven. Of course, losing his uh, career versus career match with Ultimate Warrior, you know, re um, reconnects with uh, Miss Elizabeth. I think they end up getting married, and there's like a snake at the reception. He comes back and fused with Undertaker and Jake the Snake Roberts later that year. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, I'll never forget that image. It's um. imprinted in my brain as a little kid. <laughs> but uh, but it was like a huge, he was like a, the biggest heel in the company. You know, he had had turned on Hogan a few years ago before the uh, main event at WrestleMania five. Um, and then eventually became one of the biggest baby faces in the com- company going into WrestleMania eight against Flair. So I thought I'd use that comp. And then I made another comp, you know, I think before the Thursday night game started, or the Friday night game started, that, you know, Boomer Flores just needs to hit a uh, walk-off home run at some point. It'll be the full uh, Virgil hitting million-dollar man Ted DiBiase with the million-dollar title belt, which is another very famous uh, face turn, actually about the same time 
in uh, WWF history. And yes, that was pretty much that home run was it, it sealed it. <laughs> you want to use the Horiguchi comp? You want to use the Macho Man comp? You want to use the Virgil comp? I think uh, you Darvish gave me or sorry, do Yarvish. Kevin Brown gave me the Ryback comp, which is a good one. I didn't think of that. You know, kind of like laughing stock, tough enough guy turns into like a real popular pro wrestler. How he's popular, I don't understand. Sure, but I, I get the comp. Moving I it's, on. it's a good comp. <laughs> but for me, it's Wilmer Flores and Genki Horiguchi. I already have a Horiguchi shirt. I got to pick up my Flores jersey. <laughs> and we'll be all set. Our next email, I guess I'll keep going up for now, is from David. Jeff, I consider you an... Oh, it actually went directly to me, but I did forward it to you. All right. I consider. Yes. I don't even know if he meant for me to answer this on the podcast now that I think about it. <laughs> but we're just going to answer it on the podcast and see how it goes. I consider you as analytically versed as anyone I listen to on my podcast rotation. rotation. Okay, listen to the podcast, so we're good. I probably should have read past <laughs> the first sentence. So I'm wondering if you can tell me why it seems that the Mets and most modern baseball people seem fixated on on-base percentage and slugging percentage and think less of a good old-fashioned flair base hit. When you look at the Mets' offensive woes, it seems that Alderson and company overvalued the hard-hit exit fellow. Grandison and Duda hit the ball on the screws about as good as anyone in baseball, but with modern fielding charts in the shift, 50 to 75% of those balls end up as outs. Do modern analytics value the bloop single? Because I sure do. Number one, bloop singles often get runners in from second, maybe better than hard-hit singles do. It's easier for the scoring runner to read, takes longer for the ball to get to the fielder. Two, as pitching gets better and more focused on the, in the playoffs, it seems harder to barrel balls making a Wade Boggs-type hitter your best chance to get an RBI over an A-Rod or Bonds-type of exit fellow guy. Three, working on a walk seems only to be as good as a hit when the bases are empty or full. When runners are on base, chances to score at the highest, a walk is not even close to as good as a base hit where a runner can go first to third or second to third, etc. Why does this seem lost in the analytics shuffle? Regards, David. So if anything, actually I'm not gonna say singles are overrated. I will say that you know most of your modern day advanced metrics, whatever you want to use, um, the weighted runs created plus, weighted on base average, which is just weighted runs created plus, you know, scaled to on base, you know, uh, whatever they're calling baseball prospectus's met- metric now. I think it, is it still true average? It used to be equivalent average. I think it's still true average now which is just uh, weighted on base average scaled to batting average instead of on base percentage. Um, all your war metrics, the offensive input to your war metrics, so runs above average, all of them use linear weights, which do value singles more than walks because of you know the points you made in terms of advancing base runners. And linear weights, which goes back to Palmer and Thorne's hidden game of baseball in the 70s, basically just looks at every... You know, the entire history of the offensive environment. So all the runs that were scored in baseball history and then sort of assigns a value to each of the hits. So, you know, this many home runs, this many triples, this many doubles, this many singles, this many walks, this many errors, hit by pitches, whatever, led to this many runs across baseball history. And then we can divide them up. And I forget the actual, I can look it up now. I probably should have done this ahead of time. Um, it gives them each a, a run value, essentially. And it, it makes, I think, intuitive sense. Oh, this computer is dying. So like a home run is generally wor- actually worth more than a run by linear weights because a lot of the time there are people on base. 
but not all the time. Ah, here we go. Taking this straight out of the fan graphs library. Oh my god, I don't care about this. So these are linear weights by base out state. I don't actually want this. So you have to take my work for it. <laughs> David. That uh, singles... I forget exactly what it is. I think it's worth like 0. 0.4 of a run and a walk's like 0. 0.25 or 0. 0.3. Which doesn't seem like much, but over the course of a season, you know, that adds up. Mm. Um, to a fair amount more runs for singles. Now, if you look at something like OPS, which actually double counts singles, because you get singles in both uh, on base percentage and slugging, where walks aren't included in slugging. You can say something like OPS plus, maybe overweight singles. But I think I want to get sort of the, the, the core of your question, which is not about um, linear weights or about runs above average, really sort of about specific skill sets. Um, and sort of the disappearance of the hit tool in the last 15 years or so. Because during the you know, peak offensive era of the late 90s or early 2000s, you didn't really care if a guy hit 230 if he was going to give you 35 to 40 home runs. And there were plenty, plenty of guys that did that. And they struck out a lot. They didn't hit a lot of singles. But they hit enough home runs, which were worth a fair amount through linear weights and things like that, that that was a valuable skill set to have. But as power has sort of disappeared from the game, and we can look, we can spend a whole podcast debating the reasons for that. Um, but, you know, power simply isn't there in the same quantity it was 15 years ago. Um, the ability to, you know, the three-run home run style of baseball popularized by Earl Weaver and company isn't as uh, productive, or it's at least more boom and bust. And yes, when you get to the playoffs, and it's not just the better pitching, that's a factor. Um, managers more willing to go to high-leverage relievers earlier. The weather is colder, so the ball doesn't travel as much. You know, teams like the Giants and the Cardinals and even the Royals, you know, contact-oriented teams can, can, not necessarily always do, but can have more success than, you know, sort of the boom-bust power teams like recent Yankees teams or the Braves of the last few years, for example. Um, you know, is Daniel Murphy more useful come October than Lucas Duda? Uh, I'll still take my chances with Duda. I just think he's generally a better hitter. Um, I don't know if Murphy's the best example of that either. Maybe you want to go for like a Matt Carpenter type. But I think eventually you will, and this is a thing that comes up I think in scouty circles a lot too, you will see it more of an emphasis put on those like potential 60 hit tool guys. We're not talking about necessarily, you know, bloop singles or X. We're talking about guys that make contact, hit line drives, Get on base a little bit. You know, there's value in that. Look, on base percentage is not going away. Don't make outs. Yeah. Outs are bad. You know, slugging isn't going away. Home runs are good. They're the easiest way to score a run. But I do think, sort of, on a, a skill set level, you may see more teams. And they're teams that are having success already doing it, moving more towards, we just want a good 280 hitter. Get a few good 280 hitters together. And occasionally we'll run into one. If the Mets had one, I'd be thrilled. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they have one right now, so. Our next email, let's see. 
Let's go to Ben's. We'll go to Ben's next. Gentlemen, fake teams today reported that Noah has used the infamous Warthen slider. Did they? Did they maybe get that from Eno Saris's piece at Fangrass, where he talked about playing around with it. Hmm. My gut reaction as a Mets fan, of course, is to imagine what he might tweet from his Upper East Side hospital bed. Is this paranoia, or could there legitimately be a connection between this pitch and the Mets pitchers getting hurt? I know pitchers break, it's what they do, and this is a fruitless guessing game, but I'd still appreciate your thoughts. I mean, look, Ben, there's certainly something to the idea that throwing 90-mile-an-hour sliders over and over again may put more stress on your elbow. It's not the Warthen slider's fault, though. No. Um, And I think we talked about this a little bit earlier in the season with Harvey specifically. He seemed a little gun-shy to throw that pitch. And there might be something to his being worried about that putting more stress on his arm. And he's been throwing it more recently, and he's had some more success. I mean, he looked great on uh, Friday night, and he threw it a fair amount. But yes, you know, throwing that pitch 20% of the time, like some of these guys do, there's some risk there. Now, is it... Does it substantially increase the general risk of being a pitcher? I don't know about that. No, I mean, if you throw it, what's the difference between throwing a 90 mile per hour fastball and a 90 mile per hour slider? I mean, obviously, yes, there's a difference, but. There is, I mean, there's more torque, and just a lot of these guys throw harder in general, too. And there's just, there's more stress on the joints, on the ligaments, etc. Right. I mean, when you're throwing that hard, though, you're throwing that hard. Yeah. I mean, when it comes down to it, you know, if you're going to hurt yourself because of your own velocity, then, you know. You know, Blake Taylor just had Tommy John surgery, and he barely touches 92. Yeah. And doesn't throw a slider, to speak of. Uh, you know, pitchers are just going to get hurt. I mean, reading said Eno's report on it, you come away with the idea that said slider might even be better for pitchers. I mean, it's... I mean, you could argue it's more like a cutter, so there right, might be less quote, stress on the elbow. Exactly. To quote Warthen himself, it says, it's a different spin, it's a different grip. The whole idea is not to use your wrist to try to spin the ball. You want your fingers to spin the ball. You're thinking fastball, and you just kind of cut the ball. Yeah. I mean, less wrist and more fingers is good, in and theory. He, and if yeah. you watch the break on this pitch, you know, specifically DeGrom, uh... Harvey and Familia, who I say are probably the three most prominent users of that pitch right now, the break of it is not a traditional slider break. Mm. Um, if you compare it to someone like even Wheeler when he was coming up in the minors, or Harvey's slider in the minors specifically, that are more traditional sort of heavy tilt depth slider breaks, it's not that. Um, I mean, you're still you're still casting it a little bit. I, mean, I know it's it's less wrist, but you're still throwing it damn hard. So I think there there might be something to that. But I just don't think it moves the needle enough from the general risk of, hey, I'm a pitcher that throws 200 innings. Right. Yeah. To really worry about it. And, oh, to worry about it, to move the needle more in terms of worrying about it from being a general pessimistic Mets fan. <laughs> You're free to continue to worry about it. Our next email is from Andre. Dear Mr. Paternostro and co-host, thanks again for keeping your German audience entertained with your weekly shows about the ups and downs of the Mets. We're big all over Europe. Interesting observation slash question. What do you feel is the reason for several national prospect sources to be a lot higher on the current Mets farm system than you seem to be? 
ESPN's Keith Law, oh, Keith again, had Mets ranked as the fourth best system in baseball as part of his midseason list. Yeah, okay. Baseball America, we'll get to it, don't worry. Baseball America's <laughs> Ben Badler in his most recent hot sheet chat stated, quote, it's a great farm system. John Sickles also has several Mets prospects on his midseason top 75 for what it's worth. Is it just a matter of national analysts liking some prospects like Smith, Nimmo, or Rosario a lot more for whatever reason? That's a large part of it, Andre. Are they valuing the sheer depth and potential major leaguers that remains in spite of the apparent lack of truly elite talents? Potentially, I, I might agree with that. After all, second-tier prospects like Whalen or Gant probably weren't top 15 in the Mets system. Even now, yet were enough to land... Did you even have either of them in your top 15, did you? you I might think I might have had Gant, might have had Gant. at 15 Fine. or 14, somewhere around there. Yet were enough to land a couple of solid veteran rentals via trade. Could there be a perception bonus due to the recent graduations of multiple very promising players over the past 12 to 24 months? You're getting warmer, I think. Is it falling for possible New York media height, grape lobbying by the player Mets player development staff? That's also a possibility. Or is it due to you the AAT, and the AA team possibly being more critical or conservative when judging Mets prospects and what scouts would report and tell? I think, if anything, I am more optimistic than scouts. If you look at scouts, having talked to scouts having seen some of the same players that they have. I don't want to say I'm more optimistic, but I'm more free to maybe go like a half grade higher on guys because I won't be getting a call from my cross-checker telling me to stay out another week. The comment section is not going to like hearing that because they do not like some of your grades. Oh, I know that. <laughs> have you been watching teams from different orgs loaded with superior talent to what the Mets minor league teams you have been on were able to show? Not this year, certainly. Or could the downgrading due to be a lack of comparison for other systems? That's also potentially fair. Some or all of the above. Just seems curious that the evaluations seem to differ so much right now. Kind regards from Cologne. I wonder if he's an FC Cologne fan. Andre. Okay, so I'm going to... I don't mean to toot my own horn, but I polished off this glass of ambrosia. I've seen all these guys this year. Like, I have. I've seen all of them. Not Fulmer. Yes. I have. Keith, Keith Law hasn't seen... Well, I guess Keith Law just did see Binghamton. But, I mean, those dudes don't. Yeah, they talk to scouts yeah. that see them. And they you can filter through the report. And, you, and now, like, I talk to scouts, too. And you need to have a certain amount of filter on that kind of stuff. But number four in baseball is insane. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I wish. And that's after graduating. I don't think he had Matt's on the list, either. And it was before graduating Conforto, but after graduating everybody else. And look, it's not a bad system. And, and mm. now, okay, you can argue it's a bad. So here's the, here's the problem. It's a there's a delineation that we make for mid-season list specifically. Let's just forget mid-season lists ever happened. Or, or even yeah, fine. But for this off-season, right. you know, guys like Herrera, Syndergaard, Mats, Ploiecki, Montero. Um, I guess not Conforto because he's probably going to go down, but won't be eligible for next year's list because they're not quote-unquote prospects. But that's just where you're, you're arbitrarily drawing a line. Yeah, if, if, you wanna look, point... if you want to look at the cutoff point is two years of service time, Yeah, the Mets might have the best system, quote-unquote, in baseball. Mm-hmm. Those are still assets. Those are still, they're not prospects, but they're still potentially great major leaguers. That would be an interesting list to see, you know, pre-arb... I know some teams do it. Like, uh, baseball professionals is like top talents under 25. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But if you wanna, even if you want to look at something like that. 
I mean, that makes it, but as far as like the, the, our stock and trade prospects, as we define prospects, it's not the fourth best system in baseball. No. Maybe the 24th. It might be the 24th. Um, you know, dealing Meisner and Fulmer certainly didn't help, you know, despite whatever I may have said in the first segment about them. They're still good pitching prospects. You know, potential, you know, Meisner, potential four, Fulmer, potential mid-rotation or high-leverage reliever. Those aren't, those are nice prospects. Mm. I think he, like, became, like, the fifth best prospect in the Tiger system. That doesn't count the Tiger system. is probably worse than the Mets. I can't think of anybody if they have or have graduated. Smiley, yeah. like, two years ago? Yeah. Castellanos, I guess he's oh, still technically right. playing um, in the majors. Yeah, it's all I got. But, I mean, yeah, there's going to be... I don't know where these guys get their info, to be honest. Specifically, I know who they talk to. You know, scouty types, player dev guys, other evaluators. But I don't know specifically if, you know, Paul D. Podesta is trying to bump Brandon Nemo off national lists so they can trade him. That's not really how it works. Every team has their own internal scouting sources. And resources that are far, far greater, certainly than me, and greater than any national writer because they see everybody multiple times every year. Oh yeah, I mean, literally, multiple the job people depends on it. Yeah, um, but of course, we don't get access to that information. I mean, I can only tell you what I saw this year. Um, the system is significantly down from the past few seasons, and I thought it was slightly overrated the last few seasons by national sources. I thought it was more of a top ten system than a top five system. Now it is definitely not still a top five system. But that's not mad. That's not a bad thing. That's what happens when you graduate five elite pitching prospects in three years. The pipeline is serving its purpose. Yeah, that's the goal. I don't fucking care how good the system is right now. I care that the system has produced guys that are going to make an impact down the stretch winning Major League Baseball games and maybe getting this team to the playoffs. Now look, there's some issues here. They, the, I don't want to say they haven't drafted well. But the guys they've drafted have not progressed as well as you might like, outside of someone like Conforto. Pretty much did what you expected. Yeah. You know, Smith, Chikini, and Nemo, we're talking about top-level picks, haven't really turned into potential impact Major League players yet. You know, sort of beyond that, a lot of second- and third-round prep guys haven't worked out great. You know, Ploiecki's in the majors. Matt Reynolds will probably get there. Um... You know, Meisner and Mazzoni served useful purposes in terms of bringing back... I guess I'm going to say Major League Talent. You can feel however you like about Alex Torres. <laughs> uh, well, he's in the Major Leagues. He is in the Major Leagues. And again, and then you never know what the next 60 innings of a reliever is going to bring. Um, you know, their international free agents have worked out, I think, pretty well. We can get into sort of like a draft versus development debate, which I just don't want to have um, for a variety of reasons. But I don't, you know, it's worked. The re- the system is bad for all the right reasons. Right, that's how that's, I'll put it. That's a very good way of putting it. It's the best bad system that we could have. Yeah. We'll stick with prospects and move to David's email. Dear Jeff, co-host, and assorted yippee dogs. That's been your yippee dog on the show all week, or all day, or all podcast, whatever. I'm losing it. 
secret. Basically, every single week that I'm on, it's my yippee dog. My dogs have been quiet other than one of them scratching at his collar again. Looking at the a few questions for you this week. One, looking at the Binghamton numbers this year, Gavin Cicchini is putting up better numbers than Brandon Nemo at a younger age. Is there a good case to be made at this point that he's a superior prospect? Are we answering? No. I am. I'm I'm thinking. You could make an argument, I guess. I don't feel strongly about it. That's one of those cases where the numbers will say whatever, but you really have to look at scouting profiles and reports. Yeah, it's, to... he's really a singles hitter now uh, because of the things, the changes they've made with the swing. He's not very physical, and certainly not in the same way Nimmo is. Um, if you really think Chikini can stick at shortstop, and as you know, I don't, May and you think Nimmo's knee and other things might force him to left field. Okay, we're talking about a lot of what ifs here. Um, now I don't think there's a huge gap between them. No, but I think Nimmo's still probably the better prospect. And I say it as a guy that said like the numbers for Chikini are more important than they might be for another prospect. But the numbers are just kind of shiny. There's not much to them. Two, is there a story behind the Adderlin Rodriguez release? Well, he wasn't exactly knocking on the door for a big league promotion. He showed considerable power improvement this year. 448 slugging for a third baseman at double A is decent for an org guy. What gives? Well, he's not a third baseman for starters. Uh, he's played almost exclusively first base, and he's not very good there. Yes, there is a story behind it. And as I may have mentioned in the first segment, I occasionally hear things on background that I can't really report, and this is one of them. Number three, getting back to Nimmo for a moment. Is there a chance he ever develops game power? Same question could be asked of Dominic Smith. Sure. <laughs> yes, there's a chance. As, I, as, I've, as I've been told, or as I've heard in the comment section over and over again, power develops last. The actual statement you should use for that, by the way, is if power develops, it often develops later. Not just power develops last, because that implies it's going to happen for everybody. Um, I think at this point, it is unlikely Nimmo is more than like a 10 to 15 home run guy in the majors. Just because of the, the swing tweaks, and it just, it had, the, the raw plus is still there in, in BP, he just doesn't take it into games. And at a certain point, it's double A, you gotta stop making excuses. I was talking you know? to Al's group of baseball prospectus when I was up in New Britain last week, and we were sort of talking about double A, it's double A. You know, it's no, it's it's no longer the only thing you got to really wear out when you're writing a guy up is can he have a major league team? You're not dreaming on anything anymore. There's no excuses. Guys aren't raw in Double A. If they are, there's there's something else going on there. Um, you know, at that point, it's sort of like you got to evaluate the skills. Not the players will not continue to develop because they will even at the major league level, but. It's harder to dream on things at that point. And really the same issues for Dominic Spett, though there's a whole other set of issues there, too. Um, yeah, there's a chance for both of them. Do I think it's going to happen for either of them? No. Thanks, as always, David.
So we've covered two Davids, a Ben, an Andre, a Joe, a Stuart. Yes, we'll head to one of our many Michaels. Hello, hosts. I admitted, okay, I hate Terry Collins. So what I'm about <laughs> to say won't come as much of a surprise, but I put a lot of blame for the disaster that is known at the last 24 hours at his feet. Uh, this came in July 30th, which would have been uh, Thursday. I don't think I really have to tell you, because we already covered what happened in those 24 hours. The Flores thing was very preventable. Yes, Sandy could have relayed a message to him, but the score was 7-2, to and his players crying his eyes out in front of 25,000 people, millions of TV viewers, and 25 beat reporters. He needs to be pulled. Don't play dumb. Don't shrug your shoulders. Don't wait for instructions. Just pull him. You're a manager. Manage the situation. You never liked playing Flores anyway, but now you just can't bear to pull him. Then he goes on a profanity-laced rant after the show, after the game, I'm looking at, after the game, bringing even more attention to the situation. Nobody fucking told me. I've cried before. Nobody pulled me. Why do people even come to the game? Okay, Terry. Got it. Now put a sock in it. There's no such thing as a filter. Not that he has to be Bill Belichick, but it wouldn't kill him to say no comment once in a while. Then today he leaves Familian after a 45-minute rain delay to get one out. Not 15, not 25, but 45. Over the last five years, he just continually makes bad decisions worse. Seems pretty obvious to me why his past is so checkered and why he went 10 years without a job offer. Curious for your thoughts, Mike. Look, we got Terry Collins in a pennant race. Hold on to your butts. Yeah. <laughs> um, the familiar thing was bad. Um, there's no... Look, I know the bullpen's a little shaky past Familia, and he already used Clippard, Parnell, and Robles. If you don't trust anyone else in that bullpen to get one out with a one-strike count and not give up two runs, they should be DFA'd or optioned. You know, Carlos Torres can pitch there. He's been pretty good recently. He's a cromulent middle reliever. Um, and it's not, look, Familia needed to get those outs. Don't get me wrong. You know, what happened, a lot of that's on Familia too. My concern more is just a guy that's already been kind of overworked this year, having to warm up twice through a short break like that, or a long break like that, I should say. Um... I'm just worried about the sort of the medium term effects on his arm that I am sort of the chance you're going to risk losing that game. Cause it's just not that high. This is what you're, it's what we're in for. Yep. We know what Terry Collins strengths and weaknesses are at this point. We're going to see him on display the rest of the way out. <laughs> uh, you know, I do think the way he handles the media is fine. That's actually one of his stronger points as a manager. Right. He takes he takes all the bullets. He gives them something to talk about that's not whatever else is going on with his players. And let's be honest. I mean, it's not like 80% of the other managers in the MLB are any better. They're not. Right. I, I think, mean, I, I, think I said this on Twitter, too. He's a below-average game manager, probably. Right. But the bar there is so low for average game manager that it just doesn't make yeah. a huge difference. He's just the prototypical MLB manager in today's day and age. And yeah. he does have a plus in that, you know, he has a good rapport with the clubhouse. So, I mean, at least he's doing something well. Yeah, and he handles the media fine. He protects his guys. Yep. He's fiery. You know, it's not... He does some things. He chases the platoon advantage too much, as we saw with Eric Campbell. He plays it. He, get, you know, he falls in love with guys. Campbell, Siliani, Turner. You know, the other version of Justin Turner. 
not the whatever this is version of Justin Turner. Um, but this is just this is what we get, you know. I made a I made a a joke on Twitter that you know when the game looked like it was falling apart last night, that well we wouldn't have to deal with Co- Terry Collins in a in a playoff race too much longer, and people took it took it to mean. But I thought he would get fired. Well, he's not getting fired. He, in that scenario, he's just managing us out of the playoff race in the next week. <laughs> but so far, uh, you know, you can't overcome the power of Wilmer Flores, essentially. No, you can't. But I mean, they could get bad fast. Don't get me wrong. Our next email is from our man on the ground in Gothenburg. Anders. Hejvener. I heard some rumor about Chikini being moved to center field. What are your thoughts about this? Is it just another let's move right to shortstop and Darno to left field thing? Or are the concerns surrounding his fielding at shortstop that serious? Always the best morning commute to the office when the weekly episode is out. Thanks, guys. Actually, most episodes tend to spill over into the commute back home again, too. It probably will. <laughs> Shout out to Marco, who is our uh, Bellinensis fan. We'll get to the IFK Gothenburg update at the end of the show, of course. Good luck and may the best team win. Regards, Anders. He wrote something else in Swedish at the bottom of this. I'm not even going to try. Yeah, no. Um, I had not heard that rumor. but Me neither. It's the kind of thing you hear for maybe like quick twitch shortstops that don't have the hands or arm to stick there. Um, like say Juan Lagares or Roman Quinn. Or Billy Hamilton came up as a shortstop. Chikini doesn't have the foot speed to play center. No. Is the problem there. You know, if he's moving, it's the second base. Um, yeah, I heard that about Herrera, for example. I think uh, Jeff Moore, I don't know if Jeff wrote it or Jeff heard it from scouts in the Florida State League, that maybe his better better home would be center field long term, because he's another guy. I don't have problems with his second base defense. I don't know. I don't either, really. Yeah. I mean, it's not great yet, but it's fine. He's a good right, athlete. It, it's second base. <laughs> it's not like he's actively detracting. He's not Daniel Murphy. Yeah, exactly. it's a second baseman than Murphy or Flores is. Like it's not, it's it, it's fine, and there's upside there with the glove. I think he could handle center field, but um, you know he's more of like a burner. He's a plus runner. Chikini is probably a forty runner at this point. Um, you know, and that being a forty runner isn't great up the middle either. But he's got enough sort of instincts and feel in his game that he can probably play second base as a below average runner. It's tougher in, in center field where you just got to, you know, at a certain point, you just got to get there. You got to get to the spot. And I don't think he has the foot speed to do that. No. Oh, we'll just keep plugging along. We're almost done. We are almost done. Our next email is from Ray. Howdy, gents. You've probably seen news websites showing tweets of fans when the Mets do something suboptimal, which is often. Yes. I've noticed these websites have on occasion featured tweets from Mason Avenue's own Steve Schreiber. He gives an example of that from uh, the New York CBS site. Has become the face of disgruntled Mets fans. For the record, I'm a big fan of Steve's work on Twitter. Thanks for the pod, Ray. P.S. Lucas Zhao. More like Eusebio or Ronaldo in terms of talent. I just hope Sheffield has a few good Portuguese restaurants for the squad to enjoy. Um, he is... Re- uh, Referring to Lucas Zhao, who just got signed as a uh, striker from Nacional de Madeira for about four million pounds or euros, I think. Uh, Eusebio, of course, is the legendary 
shit, I'm going to screw this up because it's, uh, if he was in it, like our Portuguese listeners are going to get really, really pissed at me because one of them, there's two very, very famous Portuguese strikers. Well, three, I guess now, because you have to count uh, Cristiano Ronaldo as well. But uh, I'm going to look this up so I don't screw this up because one of them played for uh, Sporting and one of them played for Benefica. And that's the kind of thing that if you uh, you screw up, you know, people write you very angry emails. <laughs> I, th- I feel like Eusebio was the Benefica one. You should be no stranger I think, to angry emails, though. I think Fernando uh, Peratio was the Sporting Lisbon one. Is that right? Nope. No, oh. yes, it was. Yeah, actually, oh. no, it's not, it's not. He played for, yeah, Eusebio played for Benefica. He played for Sporting uh, De Lorenco Marcus first, which is why it confused me. Um, but yeah, Eusebio played for Benefica. It was a goal-a-game scorer for them. Had a had a famous goal in uh, in the World Cup that you can still find video of on YouTube. But a legendary uh, Portuguese striker. Um, Paratio actually predates him and had some ridiculous scoring record. I'll look it up now just because it's insane. I learned about both of these players. Well, Eusebio I knew, but I didn't know Paratio until I read his, uh, or listened to, I should say, his entry in the uh, Dean Windass Hall of Fame over at the Football Rambles podcast. Oh, Fernando. Paratio. Yes. Yeah, he played for Sporting. 197 games, 331 goals. Granted, it was the 30s and 40s, and the the formations and the offensive environment were a little different. That's still kind of insane. But I will take any of those from uh, Joao. And he's he's pairing in with uh, Marcos Matias, who also is from Nacional, who's their winger. So hopefully that will lead to goals. They won 5-0 against St. Mirren in a friendly today at Hillsborough. So hopefully that'll calm some of the uh, angry Wednesday Twitter people. And Wednesday Twitter, if anything, is angrier than Mets Twitter. Really? Yes. Mm. And Wednesday's not a good day, but... Yeah. Uh, so Steve Schreiber, is he the face of disgruntled Mets fans? I guess. I don't know. Uh, it's not really my thing, Twitter mm. or any of that. So I'll take whatever your word yeah. is what I agree Green Ricky is as good a, a good a face as any for Mets Twitter, I feel like. The highs and the lows. Our next email is from Carrie. Hey, y'all. I'm really f- feeling really stoked about Cespedes' debut tonight. But I'm also feeling like there's an angle that's not getting much coverage. That's the team has finally found an adequate replacement for Josh Satin's eyebrows. I know mm. this is silly, but I figured if anyone would appreciate this, it would be you, Jeff. Feeling re- really positive after a great win and a great deal. Carrie Carrington Dane. P.S. I know I said feeling a lot in this email, as long as I'm having a lot of feelings. I did notice that about Suspedis. He's kind of a weird-looking dude. And I don't mean this particularly pejoratively. Some would say I'm a weird-looking dude, and they would probably be right. But he has, like, really weird, sharp facial features. And, like, the really, like, thin... I mean, it's, maybe it's the thin, like, the pencil-thin goatee thing that he rocks, too. <laughs> I don't feel like the eyebrows... I mean, let's take a look at his, like, 
MLB picture. But I don't think the eyebrows are really bushy enough to... No one is satin levels. It's true. That's, it is another level. And those are 80 grade eyebrows. Come on. They are. I mean, they're not bad. They're very long, and they're, like, lower, too, so you don't notice them as much, I feel. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're not on that level. But it's like, you know, it's like a... It's like comping something to Pedro's change-up or Anthony Wrecker's ass. Right, right. Everything's it's gonna... Just... It's just not gonna make it in the end. But conversely, can satin roast pigs? That's like, true. I don't um, he's so. Jewish, so I'm gonna say probably... <laughs> that, that uh, I, don't a... know if, I don't know if he keeps kosher, but... Very good point. Uh, is that everything? I know we got one more. I'm just trying to miss anything else. I believe that is everything, All except right. for our last one. Yeah, for our last one, he's Fleshtown fandom. It's from Alex. Hi Jeff, I tune into every fifth podcaster so well it works. So I'm a casual fan. It's a perfectly cromulent way to consume this podcast. God knows, but I think you're doing a great job. Your progression as a broadcaster over the last few years has been obvious. Gotta watch that mouth, though. I don't think this show is a good example of that. You only cursed like three times That's that true. I could recall. Anyhow, I'm mostly known on AA for nonsense and paint, so don't expect anything more than this email. I wanted to share some would-you-rather scenarios involving the Mets as a potential segment filler <laughs> fodder. Would-you-rather are the MS paints of hypothetical scruples. They are terrible, ridiculous, stupid, and often hilarious. Would you rather feed three starving families in a third world country at no personal cost to you, or have the Mets guaranteed a playoff space spot in 2015? Look, I'm not a monster. Yeah, come on now. Would you rather David Wright recover from spinal stenosis to his 2006-2008 form and maintain that throughout his contract, or have Bobby Bonilla play for the Mets until his deferments are fully paid out 2035 while replic- replicating... His career averages. So, for the record, another thing I should have looked up ahead of time 279, 358, 472 for Bonilla's career average. You know, in this offensive environment, that's pretty good. And that was a 124. Actually, I can. There's a way to do this, right? There's a thing where I can set his. his run environment. For his career today. I just don't remember how to do that. Oh, it's at the bottom, I think. One of the reasons baseball reference is great. Assuming I can remember how to do this. CELO Raider. It's not going well. Well, in the meantime, 2006 to 2008, David Wright was a 312, 396, 537 hitter. So you get, what, four more years, five more years of that? He signed yes. through 19 with yes, an option. Yeah. With an option for 20, I think. It sounds right to me. Or 20 years of Bonilla's performance. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm going with David Wright because. Yeah, I just want to see that level of David Wright again. Yeah. If I'm I mean, honest. Those are, those are beastly numbers. Let's just, you know. Plus, I mean, it's, it's Bobby Bonilla. Would you really want to have to deal with that for. Like another 20 years. And you have to include his defense, too. And his so I'm, I'm going to quickly... St- stupidity off the field and just... Bonilla would be like a two-and-a-half win player per 150 games, if I'm doing this math right. It's pretty good. In my head. It is, but it's not David Wright. No, 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 no. And I'll take the short-term uh, 
I'm not good at delayed gratification, so. So you want to win now. Would you rather the Mets farm system contain Corey Seager, Giolito, Joey Gallo, uh, was it Julio Arias? Julio, yeah. Or Julio. Julio. I remember it's Julio or Julio. And Kyle Schwarber. Or the Mets roster contain Mike Trout. G for Trout or get the fuck out. Yeah, I mean, he's Mike Trout. Come it's on Mike now. Trout. None of those players are turning into Mike Trout. They and can also... We are... We're the quote-unquote prospect huggers. I mean, come on, it's Mike Trout. As we uh, also established in the first segment, the Mets could use a center fielder. That is very true. Would you rather have phone sex with Jeff Wilpon until he says you're done, or walk in on Terry Collins having a threesome with your parents? Look, my parents' sex life is none of my business, so if they want to, however they want to spend their retirement years, whatever, it's fine by me. I don't want to have a I don't want a phone conversation with Jeff Wilpon. <laughs> <laughs> See, I would go with the phone sex conversation okay, with Wilpon because Why? because then hopefully I I would not be stupid and I would have something incriminating to blackmail with. Oh, him there you go. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, no, That's, you gotta gotta think dirty. You're more devious than I am. Yeah. Would you rather have Sandy Ellison's cell number, his commitment to always take your call as long as he was with the Mets? You could even have phone sex with him until you say he's done. <laughs> if you're into that. Or have the option to overrule any of Terry Collins' bullpen decisions for any game you watch that he is managing. Um, I think it would be more personally satisfying to me to uh, manage the Mets bullpen on like a day-to-day basis. Mm. But I don't know if it would work out any better, really. In theory, it should. I would want Sandy Alderson's phone number. You just want to bullshit with Sandy? I can see that. Yeah, because the thing is, we're, you know, in the mornings when I go to work, I have very limited breakfast options. So in a very ironic reversal, he could talk to me about bagels. <laughs> uh, those are your emails. Once again, you can email the podcast at podcast at com. We will wrap things up with our IFK Gothenburg update. We already covered the Sheffield Wednesday news of note, so. Uh, Balanenses, they went to the Portugal for the first leg of their home and home in the next round of Europa League qualifying. Balanenses jumped out to a big 2 nothing lead at the half, though Gothenburg did get a vital away goal in the second half to cut it to 2-1. So a 1-0 win will get them through on away goals, and anything better than that. Uh, we'll do the same this week at the Gamla Ulevi. Not much else to report. I believe they play uh, tomorrow morning, but I haven't looked up against who. I didn't prep that as well as I could have. Only an hour and a half. I thought like this was going to be longer. Yeah, I know. You were like, get ready for a three-hour podcast. We had, some, we had some good forward momentum, I feel like, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, Saturday night, man. Jacob deGrom on the bump. I'm going to Sunday's game, so if, if they're only one back for that, it's going to be crazy at City. It's going to be like Shea Stadium-esque. Enjoy Cespedes in center field. <laughs> yeah, I did see the lineup for today. It's still... Can I overrule Terry Collins' lineup decisions? As opposed to his bullpen decisions? We'll need an addendum next week. I know lineup doesn't matter, but it matters to me, the viewer. I should also say before we uh, sign off, there will be... Uh, News on our next live show next week. So that's something to look forward to. We will be uh, heading into the outer boroughs for this one, actually. 
So I'm very excited about that. Oh, Witch Out of Burrow. I, I can't announce anything until it's announced. Oh, okay. But it'll be over all over Twitter and and various other places, and I'll have more details on next week's show. So you'll just have to tune in then for another edition of Amazing Avenue Audio. <laughs>